Ben, thank you so much for joining us on stage here at Cleveland. And thank you all for sticking around for what I think is the last session of the day. So let's talk a little about a little bit about the deal environment. Obviously, it's quite muted this year compared to last year, but there are still some deals getting done. So what's what's happening? What what kind of deals are getting done right now? Well, first of all, Rachel, thank you. Great to be with you and great to be here at FreightWaves again. Um, the deal environment now is kind of like this session, right? It's the end of the day. Some of you are tired. Some of you have left the room. Some of you are having a drink, um, but you're still here. And I think the the deal environment in 2023 is kind of like that. We've gone through three years that were the biggest boom years in the history of M&A and capital raising in logistics and supply chain, 2020, 21, 22, just Kept kept getting higher uh, and in terms of valuations, deal activity, number of deals, um, number of investments, and now there's a l- little bit of a hangover effect. Uh, fewer deals, lower valuations, um, but still more deals, more investments, and more activity than where we were pre-COVID. And so I, I look at it as as the you know, meme goes, don't don't cry that it's over, smile that it happened. Right, right. Lived through this boom and and guess what? There's still more happening now than there was four years ago. So what happens to those to those startups that got those really high valuations, those amazing, you know, were able to raise tons of money. Now the valuation is not as high. People have kind of come back to earth a little bit in terms of especially how to value some of these companies that might not may have been seen as tech companies maybe five years ago. Now they're not seen as tech companies. What happens to those valuations? And are companies who had higher valuations two, two or three years ago, are they going to be seen as poorly now? Or what's what's the outcome there? Yeah. So there's no question, just from a rational standpoint, valuations are down. Okay. Peak COVID valuations, you saw deals 30, 40 times revenue uh, at valuations. And yeah, nobody's seeing that anymore. Um, however, if you compare valuations today versus where they were, say, 15 years ago, kind of a normal baseline, you, a, a great software company 15 years ago might have traded at two, three, you know, three and a half times revenue. Great software company today might be valued at something higher than that. So again, below the frothy levels of two years ago, but higher than long-term baseline. Similarly, a logistics services company, truck brokerage, freight forwarding company. Okay, so there might have been double-digit multiples in some cases two, three years ago, and they're down. But same thing, 15 years ago, that company might have been a five-times EBITDA company. Maybe today it's seven times. So I think there's some normalizing evaluation. Uh, There are deals that are getting done. They just tend to be more rational, where you have a uh, a seller or someone raising capital, and they're not doing it because they want to take advantage of frothy multiples, but they're doing it because they have a good reason. So give you an example. You're an entrepreneur building a great company, and your motivation is you know that with an extra $10 million of capital, you could add another $20 million of revenue in the next two years. Well, you're probably going to do it, not because you're trying to squeeze the last nickel evaluation out, but because it's good for the business. And then similarly, say you're an entrepreneur and you've built a great freight brokerage company over the last 20 years and you want to sell. And your reason is not because you want to squeeze out the last nickel, but simply because it's the right next step in your life. Well, again, 
you know, the, those those kinds of deals are getting done. So uh, I just view it as normalizing what the long-term average has been. Are companies avoiding getting into raising capital? Because I definitely, you know, just, just reading the headlines, knowing the headlines, there hasn't been as many of these, you know, VC rounds announcements. Is it just something that obviously, you know, on the investment side, perhaps they're feeling a bit conservative, a bit more bearish, but are these startups themselves, are they also kind of reluctant to get into the get into the mix? Yeah. So I, I think a couple things. One, there are fewer investments, fewer transactions, f- fewer everything. Two, they're they're being done at, at lower valuations. There are some entrepreneurs who are saying, you know what, I'm gonna wait this out. If I don't have to raise capital now, I won't. In some cases that makes sense because they're thinking, well, I remember what my valuation was last year. In other cases, it doesn't because if you could use the capital to grow faster, you ought to use it, you know, period, full stop, no matter what. Um, I think the the zombie company element that you alluded to earlier is worth talking more about. So what's a, a zombie freight company, a zombie supply chain tech company? Well, it's somebody that raised a lot of money and maybe they could stop doing all the things that required them to burn capital but they go from being a high growth company to a flat company. I'm not going to name names, but if you were a company that raised hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars and you were growing at 100% plus, but burning a tremendous amount of capital, all of a sudden you go, shit, if I keep doing this, I'm going to run out of money. So what happens? They cut costs, they stabilize. But if a company that used to be a high growth company ceases to, to be growing, simply because they have cut the burn rate so much, well, they might not be worth very much anymore. So they're zombies in that they're still alive, they're still proceeding, but maybe they're not the unicorn that they might have appeared to be two years ago. And I think for for the industry, we're going to see a lot of those types of... So there are some Mm. great companies that raised a lot of money. There's some great companies that have raised no money, but the challenge will be the companies that looked like they were great when they raised a lot of money but aren't growing anymore, what what happens with them and what does that mean for the market? And I think one implication is if you're competing against somebody like that, it, it's you just have to realize that that their motivations might simply be to stick around and, and that, that changes things. Is there like a good historical example or a company you can think of maybe in logistics or out of logistics, that's a good example of the sort of zombie startup phenomenon. Yeah. So if you if you lived through the the internet boom and bust, there were companies that raised a lot of money in 98, 99, and then stuck around, and then they had to find some way to reinvent themselves or, or survive. Look, I founded a, a SaaS TMS company back, back then called Threeplex, and we thought we were great, but it turned out that there were a lot of other SaaS TMS companies and the market basically said, we're going to wait and see how all this settles, you know, before we pick one. And so you had a lot of these, you know, TMS companies that mm-hmm. hung around for a while. And then eventually some of them got sold. We got sold to Maersk, which then sold to IBM. Our competitor, Oracle, uh, well, Oracle bought uh, Glog. And, and that became the Oracle TMS and uh, a handful of others didn't make it. And so I think you you may see something like that here. But it's also worth noting that some of that venture capital investment 
is critical to changing how the industry works. So for example, in 99, uh, out of curiosity, anybody here remember Global Crossing? I see a few hands. Um, Global Crossing, John, you remember, right? <laughs> um, Global Crossing did all this underwater piping that helped create this you know, global internet network. And so, yeah, they raised a lot of money and yeah, they eventually went bankrupt. But guess what? We all benefited because all of us got a much better high speed global Internet network as a result. In the same way, all this money that's been poured into supply chain technology, there will be some great companies. And then also there will be some benefit. I mean, all of us get the benefit of the fact that we see more automation in the supply chain as a result. Uh, and I think that's that's important. It's a it's a. Mm-hmm group benefit that we all achieve. Yeah, it's an it's an interesting and optimistic way of looking at it because I think it's easy to say, oh, there are all these, you know, companies doing X and Y and Z. There's no way that all of them survive. There there's too many of these types of apps out right now. Um, but it's good in like overall because it makes the industry more aware of certain issues and those companies that do survive and do stay on They'll, they'll really help the industry and help help players in the industry. Exactly. So on a on another more positive note, where are those niches that are growing that you're looking at? Uh, I know we were talking a little bit about um, reverse logistics. Like where, where else are you kind of seeing more growth and more deals getting done? So I'll tell you from, from my perspective, look at Cambridge Capital, we invest in high growth supply chain and technology companies. So we look for themes where there are tailwinds and then we look for companies that we think are leaders in that arena. I'll give you a couple of examples and tell you what's happening. You mentioned reverse logistics. Well, this past year, over $800 billion worth of inventory was returned. That's a massive number. Some of that gets thrown out. So a small portion of that gets reused. Uh, it eats into the profits of retailers, brands, and logistics companies. So it's a great example of a big problem. We invested in a company called Reverse Logics. Why? Because they're a software company. They're really the only true end-to-end solution for automating returns. Just like you have a WMS, warehouse management system for forward, this is the equivalent for returns. And so they power the returns for companies like FedEx, UPS, DHL, GXO, Rider, and a variety of others. And, and and they're growing. They should grow over 50% this year, and they're approaching profitability. Why? Well, number one, there's a big problem. Number two, they're saving people money. Number three, they can also be a profit center because if you are a logistics company and you want to sell a reverse logistics solution to your customers, you could use reverse logics as software that allows you to offer that capability. So it's nice to save money. It's also nice to be able to be a catalyst for growth at a time when we're all living through a freight recession. And so if you could find pockets of growth, you want to go for it. So I think reverse logics is a good example in the realm of returns that's focused on that. Another example, e-commerce fulfillment. Even if the surge in e-commerce growth uh, during COVID turned out to be accelerated, and it turns out that the growth in 2021 was not actually sustainable. It's still up. We're still buying more online today than we did yeah. three, four, five years ago. So e-commerce fulfillment is an area where there's growth. We invested in a company called Bird, B-Y-R-D. It's a European e-commerce fulfillment company, and they focus on the software for automating fulfillment. You're a brand that wants to sell in Europe. You can use that. Hmm. 
again, they're growing, uh, they're, they're getting better, improving their margins. And we think that's an example of a company that will continue to do well because it's meeting an underlying need. And then I'll give you a third example. There's all this talk about technology and can you, quote, disintermediate the middleman? And will the digital brokers put the traditional brokers out of business? We don't believe that's true, but we think technology can help the broker become more productive and more successful. And so AI and analytics to support that is a great illustration. So our, our friends at Green Screens are a good example of that because they're using AI for predictive pricing to help truck brokers do a better job of real-time pricing. And they grew 550% last year mm. and also approaching profitability. So again, an example of a company that's doing something right, meeting an important need, giving truck brokers the tools, A, to cut costs, uh, and, and B, to grow their business. So I think those are three examples of areas where we at Cambridge Capital are investing behind macro themes as well as specific companies. Mm-hmm. Okay. And one last question uh, as we as we wrap things up. Uh, when we were talking last week or so, we were talking about, you know, the rule of 40. And that's definitely a, a phrase that I definitely heard, you know, thrown around a lot uh, in, you know, late 2010s, early 2020s. Is it still relevant today? Is it still a good way to measure the success and, um, you know, investability of a startup? Yes. So rule of 40, how many people have heard of rule of 40? Bunch of folks. Okay. Rule of 40, it's basically what's your growth rate plus what's your profit margin? So if you were high growth, but lighting your money on fire, that wouldn't be good. And if you were making a lot of money, but no growth, that wouldn't be good. But if you're getting growth and margin, hopefully those two numbers add up to more than 40. And it's a shortcut for you know the attractiveness of a business. Um, there was a point in time where people ceased to care about the margin side of that, said, well, it's all about growth. And there was a point in time earlier when people only cared about margins and not at all about growth. And I think now it's it's a it's a mix of the two. From our standpoint at Cambridge Capital, we, we look for companies that are high growth, that have 50% plus growth. Um, and then also, if they're not profitable, they have a clear path to profitability, good unit economics. Good unit economics might mean that their contribution margin is 80% plus. So if they stopped investing in all the GNA required, they'd, they'd be profitable or very profitable business. And I think that that still matters, probably matters now more than at any point in the last few years to have both of those things right. Uh, and certainly as we at Cambridge Capital look at the new, and we have eight portfolio companies now, as we look at adding more and we will back more companies in the next year, that's one factor for us. Okay. Ben, thank you so much for for joining us and thank you all for um, sticking it out for this last session. Thank you all. Great. Thanks, Rachel. Yeah. Appreciate it.